Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Tuesday, December 12th. Well, he's doing what he can to uh, make the case that Ukraine should not be abandoned by the United States. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington. He has been meeting with Senate leaders Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer. He has been meeting with Joe Biden. He has been meeting with members of Congress. The Republican Party has admitted openly that funding for Ukraine is their bargaining chip to enact more draconian measures at the border. One of the conservative columnists who I read, um, Jonathan Last, he's part of the bulwark. He wrote today that said, you know what? Funding for Ukraine is too important. Anything horrible that gets done at the border can be undone later. Joe Biden should just capitulate, should just give the Republicans what they want. Democrats, on the other hand, are afraid that Biden will do something similar to that. And they are already complaining that they don't want him to capitulate at all to any of the Republican demands. What do I think is going to happen? I think that the Republicans, most of them anyway, understand what's at stake here and understand that Vladimir Putin, if he is able to roll through and take Ukraine, the odds that that's where it will end. I mean, does anybody remember World War Two and the, the efforts made to appease Hitler? Oh, just take this territory. Just and Hitler was like, this is all I want. Just this. I just want this. You guys back away. Give me this. Let me take this territory and we'll all be happy. How'd that work out? I don't understand why there is an inability to see the parallels here. At the very least, the people of Moldova are done for. Putin rolls through Ukraine. They are next. How about Lithuania and Estonia? They were part of the USSR, the the organization of states that Vladimir Putin would love to see recreated again. Why not them? President Biden, I think, is going to handle this well because of his experience. Yes, I know that people are saying, oh, my God, you know, he's he's old. Well, you know what? Trump ain't that much younger. But Biden has experience on Capitol Hill where he has worked virtually his entire adult life. If there's anybody who knows how to negotiate and get to where he wants to go, it is Joe Biden. He's shown us that time and time again. I think this will be one of those times. Will he make concessions on the border? He's already offered to do that. Chuck Schumer, when he put together a funding bill for the Senate to consider, did a a maneuver where he basically said to the Republicans, any amendment 
you want to this funding bill, any amendment, just throw it out there. You know, we're not putting any constraints on you. Go for it. The Republicans in the Senate responded with nothing. The Republicans in the Senate are very carefully not. They sort of generally say, well, yeah, you know, we need um, we need to fund our own problems at the border. You know, they'll say that real generally. But what those specifics are, they don't seem to have the specifics for whatever reason. So. Mike Johnson, I guess, is going to be the taking the lead here. There's a long list of demands that the Republicans have. Uh, President Biden has already said that he has no problem with um, immigration funding being added to this. Adding to the funding that is for Israel and is for Ukraine. And oh, by the way, Taiwan. The question is how how will the ultra far right vote on this? The chaos segment of the Republican Party? The part of the party that doesn't care if there's a government shutdown, doesn't care if the defense budget gets passed as long as they can um, cause enough chaos to be interviewed regularly on television. That could be the stumbling block. But, you know, Mike Johnson's got to be careful here because even though he has the blessing so far of the far right, They are a capricious lot. They turned on Kevin McCarthy and ate him alive. Mike Johnson also has to worry about the large numbers of Republicans who live in districts that Joe Biden won in the last presidential election. People who may not want to go into their next election cycle being portrayed as The people who kept anything from getting done, they're already vulnerable because of where they live. And uh, they're going to give a potential Democrat fodder in that, look at what you did. Look what happened on your watch. You let this happen. Mike Johnson is in the same place Kevin McCarthy was in. It's going to be really hard for him to make everybody happy. I would say it's going to be impossible for him to make everybody happy. So we will see. Um, The funding, according to the Office of Management and Budget, all of our funding for Ukraine disappears, goes away, is no longer at the end of this month. And Mitch McConnell, I was talking about this yesterday, but Mitch McConnell laid it out. You know, all this money that we're giving to Ukraine, first of all, it's coming out of the defense budget. So it's not like if we weren't giving this money to Ukraine, somehow this money would fund, you know, low income housing. That's not how it works. The money would go back in the defense budget. And it's a tiny fraction of it. 
But Mitch McConnell explained basically all the stuff that we've been stockpiling, all the old weapons, the old guns, the old missiles. We're sending all that to Ukraine, the old stuff. And the money that we've allocated for Ukraine also allocates money for us to replace what we send to Ukraine. And guess what? We're buying new stuff. So we're get, getting rid of our older inventory and we are acquiring brand new shiny inventory with this money. It seems like it's a win-win, doesn't it? That's a win-win. Let's see. Oh, and that's not even adding in the fact that they're keeping Vladimir Putin very busy. Very busy. Vladimir Putin doesn't care about his people. He's using his people as cannon fodder. Because as you just heard at the top of the hour, it is widely believed his strategy is simply wait them out. He believes that if he waits, if he can just hang in there long enough, the West is going to get tired of supporting Ukraine. Their support is going to weaken or lessen, and he's going to be there. He's going to be there, ready and raring to go. So, we shall see. Um... Andy just texted me that we have a call from an immigration lawyer, only identified as Robert, uh, who wants to talk about those Republican demands. Uh, Robert from Chicago. Robert, yeah, what's hi, your John, last name? <laughs> Robert Cotter. I oh, was, yes. I was on your show as a guest about a year yes. ago. Yes. So. Hello, Mr. Carr. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for advocating for the funding for the war in Ukraine. I actually am driving from the courthouse to my office right now, right through Ukrainian village as we speak. Mm. So um, I'm, I'm, that's super important. I just wanted, I called into kind of a point of information. The, the Republicans are not, not just asking for more money to go to the border. Mm-hmm. To, you know, they have a whole list situation. of demands. Well, they want to change the law. Yeah. And they essentially, if you boil it down, they want to get rid of asylum mm-hmm. and they want to get rid of parole. That's the and bottom that's line. Parole I, I, it was a pretty it's a pretty right. draconian list. Right. Right. But if they want to change immigration law, which would in a way, by the way, that would basically violate um, uh, international law and agreements and treaties that we've we've signed on, on to as a country. But um it's not really about the money because the Democrats are okay with sending more, more, uh, more border patrol agents, more people mm-hmm. there to uh, uh, deal with the influx of migrants and do interviews and things like that. Um, they want to eliminate parole, and parole is how, speaking of Ukraine, how uh, many, many thousands of Ukrainians have been allowed in, how mm-hmm. about 100,000 Afghans have been allowed in by parole. And it's a temporary status where, essentially, to make it, to simplify it, the United States says, okay, you can come in temporarily, and then you can apply for a work permit, and then, we're, you know, we'll give you appointments uh, either in court or at the immigration office, and we're going to deal, we're going we're gonna to look into your situation to see if you merit 
you know, uh, further uh, permission to stay. Uh, so they want to basically get rid of that, which would be horrible. And, uh, and Mark Pokham was talking about this yesterday on Tom Hartman and clarified that. And um, Robert, what's so your they, sense of how mm-hmm. much negotiating room Mike Johnson has? Obviously, you know, Tom Cotton from the Senate said Ukraine is our bargaining chip. We're going to use it to get as much as we can of what we want at the border. Uh, Clearly, everything they want is not going to happen. But how much is uh, the especially the far right caucus? How much rope are they going to give Mike Johnson? Well, I don't know what how there he has to look at that side, Um but I think that, that, you know, the reality is he needs the votes and he's got a very slim majority. So I think that question really goes to the moderate Republicans, if the few that exist. And are they going to hold up aid to Ukraine, which really is in all our interests? Tom Harbin yeah. laid out scenarios yesterday. I mean, that's if, if Ukraine fell to Vladimir Putin, what would that mean for Europe? I mean, mm-hmm. that, then who's next, right? But Do you think the moderates will be brave be... enough to break with their far-right brethren and uh, gather Democrats into the fold and get something done on this? I don't know. I don't I, know that I see that kind of courage there. I just there. don't know. Yeah. I just don't know. Yeah, I think anyone betting on the courage of Republican <laughs> moderates has been losing a lot of money yeah. lately, but... Um, uh, you know, there's a few, you know, but they're mo- then they keep getting kicked out, you know, and they're, yeah. when they get brave, they get kicked out of the party. Um, you know, that's kind of how it works, like Cheney and Kinsinger and them. But uh, but people should know, because it's being reported over and over that, oh, the Republicans just want money, more money to deal with situations and people coming out of the border. That's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. They, if they wanted that, there'd be an agreement today and be done. Uh, what they want is to change the law in the way they want, and they're holding Ukraine hostage yep. in order to, to change the law in a, really, in a really cruel way, especially when we need immigrants. Health wanted signs everywhere. Everybody's short of workers, and uh, we need immigrants. Yeah, we absolutely do. And I'm so tired of this idea that somehow uh, immigrants are taking something away from the rest of us, that, you know, that there's that there's something we are losing if we let immigrants in. Maybe I say this because I'm second-generation American myself, so my immigrant past is pretty darn close. Um, but I, I really think that a lot of people, um, I hear a lot of people espousing positions that it seems to me are not very well thought out, Robert. No, I agree. Just us versus them and mm-hmm. new people and... Um, mm-hmm. And it's uh, heartbreaking when you see people who are, uh, you know, the, the grandchildren of immigrants like you and I, right? That's what you meant, right? Your grandparents? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my grandfather was and, born and, in Italy. Or even, even, yeah, and mine in Ireland. And even people who are the children of immigrants sometimes say that, and it breaks <laughs> my heart because I've been serving immigrants, you know, my whole career. And I'm like, wait a minute, you, you your parents, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, so, but I think it's people try to fit in and then they're, oh, well, I'm with the majority now, you know, so, um, yep. but I, I, I think I heard an advocate saying, and I tend to agree that it's very helpful to advocate for it based on like group self-interest. In other words, 
immigration is good because it helps everyone. You know, yeah. someone's got to do this work. And and there really is a very serious worker shortage in our country right now. And um, these immigrants are ready to go. You know, they just mm-hmm. need work permits. And and a lot of them are getting work permits. And um, I, I kind of wish I love the mayor and all that. I kind of wish the mayor would say that more forcefully, um, like this in the law that right now this is a challenge. You know, to have all of a sudden they're bringing up us as a people from the border. But in the in the medium and long term, it's going to be good for Chicago. Yes. You know, it's going to be very good. You know, yeah. um, uh, the business, businesses are advocating on Capitol Hill to, to get people permits. Faster. Yeah, Robert, just, I'm going to have to wrap drive up this, on this yeah, conversation. Okay. I've, I've got to I've got some other things I want to get to before we have to take a break. But I really appreciate you calling in. Um, we'll have to get you back on the airwaves sooner rather than later, okay? Sounds great. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Um, one other thing that I want to let you know about is that <clears throat> in Congress, yes, that Congress, the House Rules Committee is considering today whether or not they are going to pass along, move forward with uh, an impeachment inquiry impeachment of President Biden. They are voting on that sometime this afternoon. In, uh, earlier on CNN, Lauren Fox was reporting on this, the fact that this vote is coming this afternoon. And um, she she said the obvious out loud. You know, she said they're they're taking this vote um, it has been said that many people simply want to do this as punishment because Donald Trump, Donald Trump wanted this to happen because, you know, darn it, they impeached me. We're going to impeach Biden. We're going to impeach everybody. Um, and she talked about the fact that, you know, they really don't have anything to back these charges up. Listen to Lauren Fox earlier today. There is no direct evidence between uh, financial payments from foreign governments and the president himself. That is something that Republicans are trying to get to the bottom of, they say. But that evidence, when you ask them, they cannot confirm where that evidence exists. So that's a key component. They cannot confirm where that evidence exists. Oh, we have evidence. Oh, yeah, we have evidence. Well, OK, where is it? Show to us. Oh, no. No, no, uh-uh. no, can't, can't do that. Mm, no, no, no. Um, James Comer, um, one of the crazier members of Congress who's a big supporter of impeachment, he had been interviewed by Jake Tapper, and Jake Tapper held his feet to the fire on this. You got evidence? Show us the evidence. And um, Mr. Comer did not come off of that interview looking very good. Mr. Comer then went on the very, very far right, very, very friendly Newsmax to do a similar interview. And the interviewer talked to him about the drubbing he got from Jake Tapper. And Mr. Comer goes on to not only um, take Jake Tapper to task, but basically insult the entire CNN viewing audience. Listen to this. He's making your investigation sound like a joke. And he's trying to make you look like a joke. And then half of America sees that and they think your investigation is a joke. How do you work around that? How do you work through that? Well, that's the first time I went on CNN in three months. Uh, We thought we would give it a try. 
You know, Jake Tapper is an intelligent guy, but he's playing to a low IQ audience. You know, uh, CNN just is hemorrhaging viewers every day. And Jake's doing what he's told uh, by his bosses at CNN who are doing what they're told by their bosses at the Democrat National Committee. I mean, CNN is a wholly owned, unprofitable subsidiary of the Democrat National Committee. So there you go. Are you a CNN watcher? You are a low IQ person because uh, who else? Who else would be watching CNN? By the way, I told you the uh, House Rules Committee is going to be voting this afternoon whether or not to kick this Biden impeachment out uh, to the full Congress. Most people seem to believe that that is um, that's likely that there are simply not enough Republicans who are willing to state the obvious. There's no evidence. This is simply retaliation. It is a mockery of our justice system. Uh, yeah. Uh, as part of that committee, there's a Democrat who spoke out today. And uh, basically took them to task and just made sure that we all understood what was going on here. Uh, Jim McGovern represents the second district of Massachusetts, and he's a Democrat, and he was not having it today. He said, you know, um, this is all about MAGA. This is all about MAGA. This is Donald Trump's revenge impeachment. And we should all acknowledge that. We've got to understand that this is nothing more than a stunt. This is a stunt impeachment. And that it is coming straight from Donald Trump. Listen to this. Donald Trump says jump. The MAGA extremists say How high? Donald Trump asked them to impeach Joe Biden, and here we are. They broke the law trying to stop Joe Biden from becoming president. They broke the law trying to violently overturn the election to prevent Joe Biden from taking office. And now they are waging this extreme political stunt by abusing and weaponizing the impeachment process. They tried to overturn the election on January 6th, and now they want to finish the job. And today... Democrats on the Rules Committee will make a simple case to the American people. First, that Joe Biden is a man of decency and integrity who respects the law, and this impeachment charade is an extreme political stunt designed to help Donald Trump win. Second, that every absurd Republican allegation against Joe Biden has been debunked. Third, that despite this fraudulent process, Republicans have received extraordinary cooperation from the White House. And fourth, that Republicans are doing this because they are focused on the wrong priorities and want to distract from their total failure to get anything done. And when this is all over, I am confident that the American people will overwhelmingly agree that this whole impeachment stunt is a national disgrace, designed to distract from their own incompetence and to help Donald Trump, a twice-impeached ex-president who's been indicted more times than he's been elected. I'm confident that they will see that this is about vengeance, retaliation, and distraction. Those on the far right of the Republican Party have nothing to show for their time and power. 
They have never accepted that Joe Biden won. Obviously, they have contempt for the American people, and they are once again trying to overturn the election. They are willing to do anything and everything to get their way, our democracy be damned. And my so-called moderate colleagues on the other side of the aisle are unwilling or unable to say enough is enough to those who are dead set on pursuing this extreme nonsense. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. A man who's been indicted more than he's been elected. How is that for a catchphrase? I don't know about you, but I kind of like it. Uh, We are going to take a break. We are going to bring you up to speed on uh, things that are happening in Israel when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. The Washington Post is reporting today that uh, President Biden has sharply criticized Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his entire government. Um, That he is saying today that there needs to be a change in the direction uh, that Israel's leadership is taking on this whole situation with Gaza. Uh, Biden said, you know, this is the most conservative government in Israel's history. He said Israel was beginning to lose support around the world because of indiscriminate bombing. Um, This is um, not exactly improving their relationship, um, which has been shaky from the very beginning. Biden never having been a huge Netanyahu fan. But he also President Biden also said kind of, I guess, the carrot with the stick that he felt that Netanyahu has the strength to change. Well, okay, let's hope so. I'm joined now by Laura Friedman, who is currently the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. She's a former officer in the U.S. Foreign Service. She's been posted in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, Beirut. She has been uh, very much involved with government and policy for a very long time. Laura, thank you so much for being here. Joan, thank you for having me. Uh, first, explain to my audience what the group you're president of, the Foundation for Middle East Peace. What is it? What does it do? Sure. So the Foundation for Middle East Peace, um, www.fmbp.org, for anyone who's interested. Um, we are an organization that's existed since the 80s. Um, a big part of what we do is grant making, um, grant making to Palestinian organizations, Israeli organizations on the ground that are fighting for peace and for, for rights and for democracy. We also fund a little bit in the U.S. and a little bit in Europe. And then we also are a, a sort of a think tank, we're kind of dual-headed. Um, we produce original research and analysis, and we do, um, particularly since the start of COVID and virtual programming, we do a tremendous amount of programming um, with partners on the ground in Israel-Palestine, Gaza, West Bank, across the whole of Palestine, um, and then Palestinian diaspora and broader. So you can come to us for all of that and more. All of that and more. Um, papers, uh, the papers on that available on the website? Yeah, so you can find everything on our website. You can find our programming and our analysis and research and everything else. Well, as I've explained to my audience uh, a million times since October 7th, my knowledge of the Middle East 
and the history and the politics and the people and the culture is not what it should be. I mean, I think I've done a, probably a little more reading than the average person, but I find the issues and the history to be so complex that, Laura, I just don't feel like I can can keep up with it. I don't feel like I ever learn enough to have an informed opinion. Uh, so share with me, based on some of what your organization has found, educate me a little bit, please. Well, I mean, I don't think there's time or probably the patience of listeners to do. <laughs> yes, the you're right. The history. depth of my ignorance is, is <laughs> so shocking. I mean, and it's it, a big hole I, I to suspect, fill. I, I suspect you know more than, than you let on here, and, and most people do, because this is an issue that's particularly, you know, we, we have the luxury of having an issue that's in the news all the time. Um, people, you know, there's lots of things happening in the world. This tends to make headlines. I would say, though, you know, looking at the current moment, you know, since October 7th, um, even you know, one does not need to be an expert on the Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict, as some people call it, as some people are calling it, you know, increasingly um, other things, including apartheid and including, um, you know, war crimes and human rights violations. You actually don't have to be an expert on any of that to look at the situation post-October 7th and say there's something that's gone horrendously wrong here. Um, when you have, you know, ten, more than more than at this point, um, I think the last number I saw, not counting bodies under buildings, is like eighteen or nineteen thousand Palestinians who've been killed since October seventh. That includes the last time I saw, I think around nine thousand children. We have, I think, ninety percent of the population of Gaza. That's a population of two point three million people that have been displaced. Uh, you have more than fifty percent of all the homes in Gaza that have been destroyed or damaged beyond use. They can't be used. Um, all, virtually all the, 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 the human, the, the civilian infrastructure, hospitals, schools have been targeted. I mean, something has gone drastically wrong here that the, the policy um, of the United States, um, in contrast to the rest of the, the world, except for um, the U.K. maybe, is basically to say um, this is actually okay and can continue until Israel has decided that it's done doing whatever it wants to do. Uh, Laura, um, that, I, I want to in, interrupt and, and back up a, a little bit. One of the problems I've been having with this is um, what are my reliable sources of information? I mean, you've got two sides to this conflict, Hamas and the Israeli government, that both have a self-interest in presenting data that looks like they're the good guys. Um, the, the, the data that you're quoting, is that from like the United Nations or is there a nonpartisan, nonpolitical place we should be getting numbers that we really feel we can rely on? So, I mean, this is, this came up earlier on in the conflict with the question of the death toll. When we had numbers coming out from the Ministry of Health, which is actually not the Hamas Ministry of Health, it's the, the, the Palestinian Authority Ministry of Health, um, you had these, these very large numbers for death tolls. Um, at some point, this was uh, a couple weeks into the conflict, you started hearing noises from, from Israelis and defenders of Israel saying these can't be trusted because they're coming out of a Hamas-run um, ministry. This is notwithstanding the fact that over the course of, we've had, you know, multiple wars over the past 20 years, with Gaza, the past 16 years since Hamas has been in charge of Gaza, where the numbers coming out of the Ministry of Health have been extremely accurate and, and not disputed by Israel. They've largely matched, matched Israel's numbers. Um, we can look back and see that record. 
Um, they also match the numbers that are coming out of um, international humanitarian aid organizations. And then the Ministry of Health went the extraordinary step of basically releasing lists of every single person because their numbers were drawn from the names and numbers, all the biometric data that is recorded at hospitals when they are tracking the numbers of dead. Um, so arguably, I think most of the international humanitarian organization community views those numbers as pretty accurate. Separate from that, you can look at the numbers that are coming out of organizations like Euromed, Norwegian, Norwegian Refugee Council, Care USA, Oxfam, and you can go through the whole list of organizations that actually are still present on the ground in Gaza, still have people, and their numbers are, 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 this, are, are similar and in some cases are much higher. I mean, Euromed's numbers include their estimate of the number of bodies that are under the under under buildings, which can't be pulled out and counted because there's isn't sufficient or really any um, equipment that lets people drag their families' bodies out from under pancaked buildings. So they're actually taking the numbers of dead that they're counting from hospitals and adding to it their own count, talking to families where they say these are the names of all the people in our family that are under that building. And they've come up with numbers like more than 20,000 dead so far. Um, so I don't, I don't think, you know, on the, on the good guy, bad guy, there isn't a question, there, there's no debate over the question that a huge number of people are being killed in the Gaza Strip. Israel does not debate that. You can debate the exact number. We're not going to know that for a long time, and it's not over. On top of that, Israel doesn't debate the fact that most of those people are civilians. The last report I saw from, from the Israelis was that the, they, they recognize they've only killed, by their count, a couple of thousand Hamas people. Now, a couple of thousand of Hamas people, when you're talking about more than between 10 and 20,000 people who are dead, is a very low percentage of the, of the total dead. Um, so, well, you know, they said, Israel said at the very beginning, um, we're going to go after Hamas. We know that the um, organization shields itself behind civilians, shields itself in places that um, U.N. centers that would normally be considered safe havens, havens. So we're telling you all right now that some of those places are going to have to be uh, where we go. I guess the question becomes, what is the acceptable ratio? You know, how many civilians equal one Hamas soldier? Um, and it does seem to pretty much everybody that, that the ratio that exists now is a little too high. Right. It, it, it's the ratio, but it's not just the ratio. I mean, there international legal experts have been now, you know, debating this for, for two months, the question of proportionality, the question of what is or isn't a, a legitimate target because of the argument of, of mm-hmm. human shields. Um, what is clear, and, and, and you can some of this you can just, you can just analyze looking at Israel's past incursions into Gaza as opposed as compared to this one. There is no question, Israel has made this clear, they are adopting different rules of engagement since October 7th compared to the rules of engagement that they adopted, which they said were the appropriate ones under national law, in their previous attacks on Gaza. When they also said it was human shields, they also said they had wide wide latitude to go after targets that were otherwise civilian targets. What we are seeing in Gaza and again, this isn't a, a he said, she said. This is there are there is, you know, video from satellites and drones and from people on the ground. Israel is systematically in parts of Gaza. It is leveling every building. It is bulldozing the ground. It is doing everything but sowing the land with salt. Um, that <laughs> that goes beyond the we were forced to target because of, 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 of you know human shields. 
On top of that, in the context of the ground incursion that's been going on now for for weeks, um, I mean, we've seen images of, for instance, Israel blowing up the parliament building for for Gaza or blowing up the main courthouse, which has all of the legal records for all of the Gaza Strip. Or I think this morning, blowing up a a huge UNRWA school. And it's hard to argue that they have to blow it up because of human shields, because those aren't being bombed. That's where Israeli soldiers feel safe enough to go to those buildings, plant explosives all around them, and then carry out a controlled detonation that levels them. It's difficult to see a controlled detonation of a building which apparently is empty enough that soldiers were able to go to it and plant the charges all around it to argue that that is a human shield situation and this is self-defense. That really just looks like destruction, destruction for the sake of destruction. Um, The the, the arguments on, on, you know, proportionality um, have almost disappeared because the, the numbers are so huge that that's just not really being argued anymore. When we're seeing, you know, photos or videos that are being circulated, by the way, by Israeli soldiers, that's where the videos are coming from, you know, videos of Israel effectively going into an area of Gaza, which they've dropped leaflets on and said, you must leave or we're going to consider everyone here to be fair game. And then arresting, detaining every male, it appears to be over the age of 14, stripping them, blindfolding them, carting them off in trucks, and then a few days later, you know, just letting them go. Because it turns out, according to Israel, that they're estimating maximum 10 to 15 percent. That's 10 or 15 people out of every 100 they put through this, they estimate may have some ties to Hamas. I'm speaking. Um, these are different I need, rules I need to do an ID. We're halfway through our interview. I want to make sure right. the people listening to us know who you are, Laura. I'm speaking yeah. to Laura Friedman, who's president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. We are talking about the situation right now as it exists in Gaza. Okay, President Biden came out and very publicly rebuked Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, the world stage is not his friend right now. So why? keep up this effort? Is he playing solely to the farthest right faction in his own country and his own government? What's, what is the upside for him? So, so I first want to say, President Biden did not publicly strongly rebuke Netanyahu. He made some comments, and they're mild comments, expressing some disagreement and some concern. It's that gentle, it's not saying you can't do it, saying we're worried that if you do this, you're going to lose support. We're worried if you do this, it could go badly for you. We, we believe that when this is all over, you're going to have to accept X. There's no, there's no language in that. I'm speaking as a former diplomat. That is not the language of holding a party accountable. It's not the language of, of requiring anyone to do someone. That is incredibly passive diplomatic language. So it's not calling them out. Even the, when he said Netanyahu has to find the strength to change? So I believe he's already walked that back. I saw something just before I got on suggesting that language has been changed, like the, you should do this. Um, it, it, you know, making a statement to the press about it's like there's going to have to be changes before everyone can before there before no child be hungry is different than saying we will have a new policy to make sure children don't go hungry. These are very, very different. They're, they're, they're different weight statements. Um, I do not see what he said yesterday. Um, as a as a strong rebuke. On top of that, fine, let's say, for the sake of argument, that people want to view that as a strong rebuke. Let's remember that the last thing this administration did on Friday 
was it basically went over the head of Congress to to give approval for a massive new shipment of weaponry of of of, of, um, of tank uh, munitions to Israel. We are in no way saying put the brakes on what's happening. If there's any disagreement that seems to be coming out between the Biden administration and Bibi, it's what's going to happen, quote unquote, the day after this ends. And, you know, it's fine if people want to talk about the day after. It's fine, but it's utterly amoral and dehumanizing because essentially what we're saying is what's happening on the ground at the minimum is, 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 is horrific and disproportionate violence. And, and then again, we have nine, more than 90% of a population of 2.3 million people has been displaced, not by natural catastrophe, right? They have literally and deliberately been pushed into a narrow corner of Gaza. And there's ongoing efforts to push them out of Gaza completely, if only the world will agree to let Israel do this. But beyond that, this is still happening. Hundreds of people are being killed every day, including children. And if the position of the U.S. is, listen, we're going to let you finish this, whatever that means by your definition of finish, and then we're going to talk about, maybe we'll disagree about what's next. We're basically saying, fine, continue with ethnic cleansing. People are very sensitive about the word genocide. Top top experts on genocide, top experts on Jewish history and the Holocaust are saying, this is genocide, or this is incipient genocide, or we must stop to prevent genocide. And effectively, the U.S. policy is, we're going to support you 100% with whatever you need and with complete support and defense of the United Nations while you finish what you're going to do. It sure looks like when they finish what they're going to do, there isn't going to be a debate between the Biden administration and the BB government about whether the PA should or shouldn't come back to Gaza. There's not going to be anything for the PA to come back to. You- you are saying that by the time this is quote unquote done, Gaza will simply be rubble. Look, at this point, again, based on we have since since October 7th, there is now a library filled with the statements from Israeli officials, Israeli you're talking IDF officials and politicians making clear that their intent is to destroy Gaza and to remove Palestinians. And they're on the record with this. You can say, well, it's just words. They don't mean it. They're just angry, which is, you know, are these uh, far right now- members of Beton- Benjamin Netanyahu's government saying this? No, these are the heads of the IDF. This is these are the people in the IDF who say there will not be water. There will not be fuel. There will not be food. Nothing gets in there. They are not human beings. They are human animals. That's the head of the IDF, right? This is this has been across the spectrum in Israel. The language of genocide towards Palestinians in Gaza has been far reaching and it continues to the present day in parallel. The actions they are taking in Gaza, even if you said, I don't believe anything they say, I don't believe what they say, watch their feet. Well, if you are looking from outer space and watching what Israel is doing in Gaza, it would be impossible to not conclude that the goal there is to make Gaza unlivable for Palestinians, to erase Palestinian life in Gaza, to push Palestinians out of Gaza. If you have to have any that are left, Take for again, this is a member, I believe, of the IDF who at the beginning of this said at the end of this campaign, there will be no buildings left in Gaza, only tents. And that's where we're headed. So while Bibi and Biden may disagree on what happens the day after, the U.S. is doing nothing to prevent the day after being the day after the end of any Palestinians in Gaza. And in the meantime, the Biden administration is defending. We are repeatedly 
we're truly vetoing resolutions that would that would ask for a ceasefire, that would press for a ceasefire, that would press for getting the hostages back. There is really hostages still in Gaza who every day might be bombed. I mean, this is this is where we are. Well, if if negotiations were successful in releasing some of the hostages um, and uh, the Israeli government said, you know, we will we will hold off as long as there is this good faith, as long as hostages are being produced, we will hold off. And a couple of the experts I talked to uh, said that when the hostage flow stopped, that's when Israel picked up their uh, picked up their weapons again. But a couple of different people I've spoken to said that the reason Hamas doesn't want to release those last hostages is because they are women. They are continuing to rape and they don't want um, they don't want anybody being released that's going to talk about how they have been treated um, in a there was an opportunity. There was an opportunity here. And Israel also says that that, you know, you said the percentages were were low, but they're also saying that some of those Palestinian men that you are seeing in the pictures are indeed Hamas, Hamas, who are surrendering, who are putting down their weapons, um, who don't want uh, this to go on anymore. Though Hamas has said none of the none of the people in the pictures are surrendering because, of course, no one would ever surrender. Um it is a difficult and it is a nuanced situation. Nobody wants to see food and medicine and other supplies not getting to the people of Gaza. But I don't know, aside from if we shut off the flow of munitions, if Israel is unable to to complete this this action to take out Hamas. I mean, Hamas has stated that their their mission is to destroy Israel. You know, I mean, it does. I'm not. I'm not saying that the scorched earth policy is the way to go, but I do believe Israel feels that its very existence is being threatened. That is why um, that I think so many people are afraid to to criticize them, because how do you criticize somebody who's literally fighting for their life? Right. So, listen, I, I, I would there's a few things in there. I don't know how much time we have. I don't want to debate every single piece of it. The first thing is there's lots of different analyses of why the hostage exchange stopped and, the, and Israel started bombing again. I think it is worth noting the out of the White House, we had that analysis saying it's because of women, they're still being raped. Um, when the White House spokesperson or State Department spokesperson was pressed on that, they said, oh, actually, we don't know that. That is that is speculation. And I think 24 hours later, the IDF came out publicly and said, stop saying that. You're not making things any better. I will I will note that based on what we saw on October 7th, the idea that Hamas would, if that were the case, that they just wouldn't kill people as opposed to, you know, keep them into it. doesn't, if, if they're afraid that these people are going to say, if, they're, if this is what's actually happening, it doesn't make sense to me that they just wouldn't kill them because that's allegedly what they did on October 7th. So why wouldn't they do that with hostages? In terms of the exchange of hostages, I think it's important to make this clear. The exchange of hostage option has been on the table, as I understand it, from diplomats who are dealing directly with Qatar and directly with this engagement since almost the first week of this of this fighting. And Israel chose not to take it. They chose to, to go ahead and launch this incredibly punitive retri- war of retribution against every single man, woman and child in Gaza. 
And I think it's important to say, when you talk about a war of survival against Hamas, you have the Israeli military doctrine right now is that there are no innocent civilians in Gaza. They keep saying that. I don't know why people won't believe them. When we have, at this point, eight to 10,000 children dead, and we're still debating whether or not this is a war on Hamas or war on Gaza, I don't understand. Does it matter? We have a new category, a new demographic category in Gaza. It is the Wounded Child No Surviving Family. They've actually created an acronym for that because there are so many wounded children who are being pulled out of buildings with no surviving family. And somehow we're debating whether or not that's okay. It's not okay. Israel is not going to wipe out Hamas by clear-cutting Gaza and creating an entire new generation of traumatized, injured, orphaned people. What's behind Hamas is an ideology, and it's an ideology which is fueled and fed by desperation, by lack of freedom. You can say it's fed by radicalism, radicalism that feeds on desperation. If you want to get at that, you get at that by changing the structure of -hmm. people's lives. Not by bombing an entire generation. Again, 90% of a population of 2.3 million people displaced. At this point, it's like one in every 300 people in Gaza has been killed. I mean, it's like we're creating the next generation numbers. of terrorists. But you don't, you, yes, A, absolutely. But B, the idea that you don't do this because you don't want to create the next generation of terrorists is a really problematic and incredibly dehumanizing framing. You don't do this because it is wrong. You don't, it, 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 it's like when you're in kindergarten and someone says, I'm going to punish the whole class if the person who broke that plate doesn't say that they did it. The whole class will be punished. You're punishing all of Gaza, every man, woman, and child, the Hamas. They are not Hamas. They are people. If Israel could get at Hamas, they would have done it over the past 16 years. Instead, over the past 16 years, the Israeli government actively worked to allow Hamas to stay in, in power. The Bibi, successive Bibi governments, Netanyahu governments, were critical in continuing the flow of funding because, because Benjamin Netanyahu, until October 7th, saw Hamas in Gaza as a useful tool to keep the Palestinian polity divided between the West Bank and Gaza and prevent any pressure on him to ever agree to a Palestinian state. One of my political science professors said that Hamas and uh, Netanyahu need each other. They need each other to continue existence, that um, one side eliminating the other side would uh, weaken the person who's left as well as the person who gets eliminated. Um, Laura, we're out of time. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and my audience. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. I'm very pleased to welcome back to our airwaves Congressman Bill Foster. He represents Illinois' 11th district. And uh, Congressman, how are you? We haven't spoken for a while. I'm doing okay. Well, as well as you can in Washington, D.C. these days. Yeah, really. Are you going uh, home this Friday or not? Do you know yet? 
Well, look, I'm willing to stay around and work if that's what's necessary to get the Ukraine funding passed. Yeah, because that's uh, that's that, that's really crucial. You know, Zelensky, Washington uh, today and, uh, you know, by all accounts, gave a really good, um, you know, he laid out the case and it's pretty clear. Now, but there's actually one thing that people don't say enough about the situation with Ukraine. You know, in at the end of the Cold War, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in return for a guarantee that of its territorial integrity. And that was a guarantee that was provided by the United States, by England, by the EU, um, and signed by Russia. Um, and this was not a treaty-level thing, but um, I think it was a Budapest memorandum, if I remember right. Um, and so as a result, you know, Ukraine had more than a thousand nuclear weapons on its territory at the close of the, the war. But instead of keeping them and becoming a nuclear power itself, it gave them up in return for the promise. So what does that say about uh, what the United States and the free world will do if we will not support Ukraine after it gave up nuclear weapons to make the world a safer place? I and I think that's uh, that should not be forgotten in this debate about whether or not it's worth um, defending Ukraine. And uh, I think the people who think that... Um that if if Putin rolls over Ukraine, I think the people who believe that things would stop there are being terrifically, terrifically naive when part of the reason why he's rolling through Ukraine is to restore the glory of the USSR, um, um, the splitting up of which he has bemoaned for years. I don't understand why people can fail to see the big picture here. Ukraine is doing us such a favor by keeping Putin occupied and hopefully uh, really weakening him, as well as the fact that even Mitch McConnell gave a um, a news conference a, a few weeks ago, and he said, do, do people not get it? You know, we have this money for Ukraine. We're basically sending a lot of munitions over to them, and you know what? We're taking that money and we're buying brand new stuff for us. So it's like a win, 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 win. And, you know, I think it was... I'm. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was Tom Cotton who off, you know, off camera told a reporter that, um, well, we really want a bunch of changes at the border and Ukraine is the only bargaining chip we have. Yep. I don't know whether they... that's really. Yep, yeah. I, I agree. Well, that attitude permeates, uh, certainly it permeates the House on this. Um, and this, you know, oh, Fine. I, I, this, the issue should be separated. There should be an unconditional guarantee of of the defense of freedom, um, you know, certainly in Europe and around the world. And there could not be, I can't think of a cleaner example of pure freedom fighters than the, um, than the Ukrainian people today. And so uh, I am just, you know, frustrated that, um, you know, Speaker Johnson is not just allowing us to bring up a vote on on Ukraine, um, on Ukraine defense funding, but that's the way they're just choosing to play the game. Do you think um, Mike Johnson is willing to sit down and, and negotiate this? I mean, you know, obviously the House has put together a long list of uh, border demands that they have. Is there any indication to you that 
Mike Johnson would sit down and negotiate some of this. Can he even negotiate it? You know, I mean, negotiating yeah. with the Democrats yeah, got Kevin question. McCarthy yeah, in a that, lot of trouble. That's right. They got him removed. And, and you know, Speaker Johnson's uh, margin of vote is no higher than um, than Kevin McCarthy's. And the extreme wing of his party is no less crazy. So, you know, it's not clear that that he's going to be able to more than once or twice or three times, uh, you know, make some sort of um, accommodation to the Democratic and or even the majority opinion of the United States uh, without losing his job. So you know, we'll, we'll see. This is the first real measurement of how much room he has to wiggle before you know, the, the extreme wing of his party will put a pork in him. There have been a few <laughs> political science professors I've spoken to who say when they've observed Mike Johnson in this short, relatively short tenure as speaker, they see someone who is wildly inexperienced, someone who uh, doesn't have the best grasp of how to get from point A to point B. Um, could in his inexperience do you think that could motivate him to say, you know, Congressman Foster, this is a mess. Uh, I can't please anybody. I can't please everybody. So let's just go home this Friday and not worry about it. Um, that is a standard technique to hide from your problems. You know, initially, uh, Speaker Johnson, prior to being elected speaker, circulated a letter that said, here is my plan. We are going to systematically, one by one, pass all of the um, you know, all of the appropriation bills, and that will put us in a strong position to negotiate with the Senate and the administration. Only the problem is, every time they bring up one of these appropriation bills, um, you know, they'll say, okay, let's cut Amtrak by a factor of two or something like this. And they will be a lot more than five Republicans that say, no way am I voting for that. And so that then instead of bringing it up and having it fail, which they tried a couple times, they just say, give up and, okay, go home and we'll just pass some nonsense bills all week. And that's what they've been doing. But, you know, in a funny way, it's our democracy working as it should, because the reason the Republicans can't pass any of these bills is because their their policies are unpopular with the American people. And if they were popular, they could get the votes. And it's a very weird, dysfunctional way for our democracy to work. But in a kind of a funny way, it's working. And so what the result of all of this is that Republicans complain about all the time where, you know, more than... Well, they're almost a year into the Republican quote-unquote control, and we're still operating under what they call the Nancy Pelosi budget because they can't pass something else. So, okay, so if well, we have to just change speakers every three months and keep operating on the Nancy Pelosi budget for the entire two years that they're supposed to be in control, you know, they're worst scenarios I can think of. Do you know for sure that there are Republicans in Congress who would like to support Ukraine? believe we should? Yes. Yeah. No question. There's no question. There are a lot of them. And I'm pretty sure if we have a standalone bill, um, it would pass the House with flying colors. Um, that's I think that's true. It's just the problem is that the Republicans are so focused on, you know, on the replacement theory that they that they are doing everything they can to make this about immigration instead of you know, mm-hmm. defending the free world. There's been I read one article that said if you guys do get sent home, if there is no package for Ukraine, that maybe at least in the short term, some of our allies could sort of um, 
fill in the gap, at least temporarily. Do you think that could happen, or and or even if so, is yeah, it viable? It, I, it could. Yeah, it could. Um, you know, the it's not just the United States, but uh, but our allies are have held back for very good reason some of the highest capability weapons that they have. Um, and so one by one, you know, Russia has been trying to keep those weapons off the battlefield. But, you know, if they start running low on the normal supplies, artillery shells and stuff, you know, there's some very high, high highly capable missiles that, uh, you know, that the Germans, the French, the English have. You know, the other unsung heroes in this are the South Koreans. The South really? Koreans have had to maintain, they have had to maintain a very, well, you know, they're facing North Korea, mm-hmm. which has an enormous production capacity. You know, prior to the Korean War, North Korea was the industrial north of the country and and South Korea was the rural south. And so the, there's huge latent industrial capacity in North Korea. And they have, they, they are the ones who are supplying over a million artillery shells, uh, I think, in the last couple months to Russia. However, the South Koreans have had to, you know, maintain a matching capability, and a lot of the, um, a lot of the NATO allies are being supplied uh, directly or indirectly through the South Koreans. So they have become the the arsenal of democracy um, hmm. in our in our lifetimes. That's that's so. fascinating. I was I was unaware of that. Um, I also want to shifting gears here a little bit. I want to talk to you about uh, the United Auto Workers and some of the victories that they have had, uh, especially out in the far suburbs. Oh, yeah. Belvedere, you know, my under this new district map, you know, my, my district is sort of crazy. You know, when people ask, Bill, where's your new district? I say, well, you get off the, the plane, you know, here, you drive 45 minutes in any direction. And then you're either in my district or you're in Lake Michigan. Okay. And that's pretty, that's pretty much what, you know, so my, I have bits of eight different counties. And up in the northwest corner is the town of Belvedere. Um, those of you who have driven up past Rockford, you know, to go to Wisconsin or Minneapolis or wherever, right before you get to Rockford, there's a big, shiny uh, Chrysler plant that's been there for generations. Well, Chrysler got bought by Fiat. Fiat got bought by this Dutch conglomerate called Stellantis. And Stellantis has, had threatened and then announced and did did idle the plant at Belvedere, which at its peak had 6,000 workers. And, you know, for generations, this the Chrysler assembly plant has been the, you know, the beating heart of the city of Belvedere. And so what happened uh, when they announced that closure uh, was that, first off, um, it became an all-hands-on-deck effort for the Democratic delegations to the Illinois State House, to the federal government, and, and the governor's team was just, you know, came together, as well as all of the local units of government, not all of which are, are Democratic out there. But we came together and we said, we have to do everything we can to preserve this plant and to preserve some kind of future for the city of Delta. And so what happened is at the federal level, we got all made sure that all of the federal incentives uh, were available. And I want to also give a, a shout out to Eric Sorensen, who's my colleague. He represents uh, Rockford and, and places west. I represent all the way up to Belvedere on the other side. A lot of the workers live in both of our districts. And Eric has, um, he has childhood friends who work at the plant or used to before the plant was idled. And so what happened is that we made sure we put every one of the, the federal incentives and state level incentives that we could to offer. 
And then what happened uh, was that the United Auto Workers, when they went out on strike, you know, their first demand was for uh, the wages and and salaries and benefits that they you know had deserved. And their second demand was provide a future for Belvedere, save Belvedere. And it was remarkable because these were these were UAW locals from all over the country. You know, we had a big rally down in um, on the Ford plant uh, you know, in the south side of Chicago, where workers came in from UAW locals from all over the Midwest, and many of them were wearing these red T-shirts that said, "We are all Belvedere," and that was the number two negotiating demand. Um, and when the, the strike was settled, lo and behold. Atlantis, instead of idling the plant, is going to convert the plant to a conversion of to to being used first off as a parts distribution uh, and a, and and building electric cars or light trucks there, and they are going to build a factory building batteries right next to the the assembly plant. So, so does that mean when all jobs. is said and done, they will actually have a bigger footprint than they had before? That's correct. There's going to be a thousand jobs in the new battery factory alone. And so this is, you know, it's going to provide a future for Belvedere for generations. And so, you know, there's this narrative out there that, that, oh, the Rust Belt has been wrecked by unions and all this stuff. Well, try telling that to the city of Belvedere right now. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing success story. And frankly, part of it that is so amazing is how many disparate elements came together to work for the same goal. Yep. No, and it was, it was, and, you know, it wasn't looking good. Uh, you know, the, the governor had been working on it for more than a year because we saw this coming. But, you know, until we had passed all of the federal incentives, the Inflation Reduction Act and just everything, infrastructure money, all of this stuff will be important to provide the federal incentives to make Stellantis convert any of its factories into, you know, electric vehicles of the future, much less do the right thing for the city of Belvedere. That's so amazing. It was, it was That's so amazing. And, but, you know, frankly, you know, my staff was yelling at me, Bill, <laughs> you know, you're wasting too much time on, on Belvedere. It's not going to happen. It's, you know, wow. Atlantis is never never going to do this. And I said, look, it, this is this is what it means to be in a, a part of a representative government. You do everything you can for the people you represent. What do you and, think was the really, was there was there one um, one idea one policy that um, changed Atlantis's mind? Well. My guess is part of it. The biggest single factor was the UAW. Mm-hmm. The number two factor probably was all of the federal incentives that made electric vehicles something that was going to be continued to be a growth industry in this country. And everything that, that President Biden has done to bring that manufacturing back home instead of just trying to build electric vehicles in you know China and Mexico and you name it. And so those were that probably the biggest factor. But then, you know, the local government came together and they identified the parcel of land that where the, the battery factory will be built. That was the first time I started to feel positive about it when Stellantis was asking more and more detailed questions about mm-hmm. the parcel of land adjacent to the factory. Because a modern, a modern electric vehicle factory consists of a battery factory right next to the vehicle assembly. And so this was that. That's when I started crossing my fingers. This might happen, you know. And I can't say enough about the governor's team. You know, there's a um, there are times when it's really nice to have a governor who's a really good businessman, 
<laughs> and this was one of the times. It's, it's, you know, we had, we had collaborated also to get the electric school bus plant, the Lion Electric plant down in Joliet, which is where I used to represent. And so we had, I don't know how many Zooms I was on with the governor's team and the uh, and the um, Lion Electric, which is a Canadian company that wanted to build electric school buses in the United States because of the federal incentives we were providing for that. And But they were looking at, you know, Georgia and Texas and, you know, a bunch of other states, mostly right-to-work states. Mm-hmm. And we landed that factory in Illinois. That's and, wonderful. Uh, so, so like <clears throat> I say, and, but it was really nice to have a governor who's a good businessman. I hope I don't get him in trouble with any of the listeners. <laughs> but, it's, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm a businessman myself, as you, you probably know. I, and I, a scientist. Theater state. That, yeah, mostly a scientist, but also <laughs> theater stage lighting. You know, I just followed the well, well-worn path from theatrical stage lighting to high-energy particle physics. <laughs> yes, yes as one does. Just, just another one of those, you know. So it's like all of these lawyers that get in Congress. Well, um, as long as I have you, uh, Bill Foster, the scientist here, one a news item that I have not mentioned uh, on the radio so far, there's been a big announcement about the FDA approving CRISPR, which is a gene editing oh. technique for sickle cell. Um, and I know that yep. this has been something that you've been paying attention to. Talk to us about it. Oh, oh, sure. No, I've been, I've been working on this. You know, back in 2012, uh, you know, as a as a result of federally funded research. A woman researcher by the name of Jennifer Doudna came upon, discovered this incredible mechanism that has evolved in bacteria that allows it to identify specific strands of DNA and modify it and chop it into little pieces, and which allows you to modify it um, and at specific locations in the DNA. And so she and others realized that this could be used to do gene editing, which has been a dream that seemed way out of reach for a long time. And so what happened after this discovery, I started getting, you know, as the, at the time, the only PhD scientist in Congress, I started getting these increasingly urgent calls from cellular biologists that, Bill, you know, there has been this incredible discovery called CRISPR. And as a result, Brave New World is not 100 years away, and it may only be 10. In fact, it, it was only six years after her discovery of this that it was first used to by a Chinese gentleman to genetically engineer a baby, which mm-hmm. creeped out the entire world. Yeah, he's but, just been released time, from prison. I was reading about him recently. Sure. He's been released from prison. He does not. Um, he doesn't apologize for what he did. As a matter of fact, he has created a new institute, and I'm sure he's yep. going to be careful to try to stay uh, under the radar or on the right side of the law. But he is proceeding. He is proceeding yep. apace anyway, with his work. So that is a word. That's, that is the, the dark side of CRISPR. But the incredible upside of CRISPR is that it is being used for, um, well, among other things, for curing diseases. And, you know, when I, I was, as a result of my interest in this, we invited Jennifer Doudna to come and do presentations to Congress about this incredible technology. She discovered. she got the Nobel Prize, which she mm-hmm. in 2020. For. Yeah. And um, so anyway, so as a result of my interest in this, um, we've had hearings in the Science Committee and so on. Um, I was invited to give the kickoff talk at a meeting on human genetic engineering held by the National Academies of the United States, of England, and of China, 
where they all got together and said, let's come up with some rules. And so that at that speech, I said, all right, all of you, you know, scientists and businessmen in the audience, um, I think it's very important that the, the public's first view of this technology be a positive one. And my recommendation back then, probably eight, nine years ago, was um, we should make curing sickle cell a high, a high priority because sickle cell is a genetic disease. We know it's caused by a single base pair that's screwed up in your DNA, a single letter misspelled in our DNA code. And we've known about it for like more than 20 years, exactly where that misspelling was, but we had no way to get at it and fix it. And now with CRISPR, you could fix it. And so what they've developed and what has been just approved by the, the FDA is a procedure where you take your, your bone marrow, uh, a sample of your bone marrow, which is where all of your red blood cells come from, and then you separate it out and you grow it up in a, in a vat and you gene edit it. You make the change so that the new bone marrow is, does not have this defect. Then you go through a very um, intensive procedure, which is like chemotherapy and like being in sort of a bubble boy environment where they use chemotherapy to pretty much destroy all of your existing bone marrow that's defective. And then you inject the new, the new bone marrow that's been fixed. And so, that, you know, you have to spend 10 weeks since this effectively destroys your immune system. Mm-hmm. You're 10 weeks in a sort of bubble boy environment being super careful not to get exposed to any germs. And then um, at the end of that, you're um, with the new bone marrow reinjected. It populates in all of your inside your bones, so it starts to produce, uh, you know, new blood cells that are perfect blood cells and don't have this defect. Um, and so this is, uh, you know, it's just an incredible um, scientific capability. But the point that I have been stressing for the last eight years on this is that this only exists because of of federal funding for fundamental scientific research, followed by when you see that the research is about to pay off a big push of federal funds to get it across the finish line. And so this is what the next step is. We now understand how to cure sickle cell. There are more than 50 patients that have been, um, that have been cured by genetic modification to their, um, uh, you know, to their bone marrow. And and now we know how to do it, but we need a big slug of federal money to um, you know to apply that cure to the uh, as many of the hundred thousand Americans who suffer from sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also interesting to look at the you know the demographics of sickle cell disease are are interesting and informative because of the hundred thousand sufferers from sickle cell, the great majority are African Americans. And it has been observed by many people that that sickle cell research has had a hard time historically getting its fair share of federal research money for reasons that aren't very good and and perhaps related to the fact of who suffers from it. And this is an opportunity now that with the, we've developed the cure. It's sickle cell has been one of the, you know, the first things that um, were developed with this technology. And now it is our duty to get the money out to apply that cure to everyone who qualifies for it. Yeah. And that's the next step. And we have Danny Davis actually is one of the members of the Sickle Cell Caucus, um, who we are, we've been collaborating on for you know more than eight years on this. And, uh, and so as this is, 
That's Speaking as a yeah. former and respiratory the other- therapist, I know there's a lot of people with cystic fibrosis who are also hoping that this kind of CRISPR technology can help them with their genetic illness as well. That's right. No, this will be the, hopefully the the leading edge of a blade which will you know be stuck mm-hmm. into the heart of many of these diseases that have just been scourges um, for humanity for a long time. And um, anyway, but that's good news, you know. That's we're good news. We like to end season. with good news, it's Congressman nice to Foster. Have good news. That's yes. right. Well, with Belvedere <laughs> and and the cure for sickle cell are are things that make you feel good about government working the way it should. Yes, and thank you so much for taking time out of what I have a feeling is a pretty busy day uh, to be here. And uh, no offense, but I hope you don't go home on Friday. I I concur. I will be happy if we we got to do the right thing for Ukraine. We just yeah. have to. Um, okay, well, thanks. thanks so much. Thanks so much, Bill. Congressman okay. Bill Foster represents Illinois' 11th District. We are going to take a break and be back with more after this. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 a.m., WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. You know what time it is? Hello? Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, now on WCPT 820. And I'm pleased to be joined by our very own Tim Hogan, our executive editor, our Heartland Signal senior news editor. Tim, how are you today? Hey, Joan. It's great to be here. Good to be with you. Is it a good day? Are we having a good day? Uh, I feel like it's all relative now, right? (laughs) It's like we're in the holiday season. We're we're hoping and praying things are okay day by day. At, uh, at one of the get-togethers I had near Thanksgiving, I told everybody uh, that I was thankful that things were not worse. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I feel, you know, because um, things can always be worse, and God knows they have been worse, and I'm just glad they're not worse right now. Hey, I, you may have heard I was just talking with uh, Congressman Bill Foster, and uh, mm-hmm. the question on the table is, will he be coming home for his holiday break this Friday, or will, as President Biden wants, they be asked by Mike Johnson to stay a little longer to see whether or not something can be negotiated, if there can be some sort of aid for Ukraine and, oh, by the way, Israel and maybe Taiwan as well. What do you what do you think the odds are of that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think we might know here a little bit more when we hear from uh, Vladimir Zelensky and President Biden in a, in a joint statement, uh, joint press conference that's coming. I'm hoping uh, that something will get done because, like the president said, we would be giving Vladimir Putin the greatest Christmas gift he could possibly get uh, if we don't get this done. And thankfully, I think there are some Republicans who understand that the security concerns, the areas of the world that you outlined, they're all tied together uh, and that a package of aid should move together as a result. But, you know, we know that he met with I believe he already met with Speaker Johnson, who seemed fairly unmoved by the meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is this is it's critical funding and it's got to get done. So I hope Congressman Foster is is. prepared to stay, wants to stay, and does stay, and and that this gets done. Uh, I think it is critical funding. And Bill Foster said that he believes that 
if for some reason they would abandon this idea that uh, they have to, the government has to agree to all their uh, demands on immigration before they fund Ukraine. He said if there were a standalone Ukraine bill, he's virtually certain it would pass the Congress, that he knows lots of Republicans who want to see aid to Ukraine continued. Um, but if Mike Johnson tells everybody to go home, that will be moot, won't it? Yeah, it's, that's absolutely right. I mean, what the reality is that Republicans do have some leverage here, right? They have uh, a border security bill, immigration bill that they passed, that they essentially want passed near in full as attached to this uh, Ukraine funding, uh, which is also attached to funding for Israel and, and for Taiwan. And, you know, we've been here before around Christmas with some critical legislation to pass. We thought that we cleared the decks this year when we pushed uh, further into the new year a government shutdown for funding that's now on two separate tracks, so we could have two different parts of the government shut down at different times. But, but the reality is we never cleared with this supplemental. So uh, here we are again. It's, it's again the holidays, and it is sometimes beneficial that – it, it, it seems bad that we have to focus on this at this point in time, right? People want to be with their family. They don't want to be thinking about the news. But it is sometimes a uh, motivator to focus lawmakers to get their job done because there is nothing more that they like uh, near December 25th than the smell of jet fumes, getting ready to leave <laughs> and go see their families and take a break. So we'll see if the holidays are a motivating factor like they have been in the past. I've been talking to a lot of different people about Mike Johnson, who up until his elevation to speaker was pretty much an unknown quantity. And uh, some of the political science folks I've been speaking with say that he is uh, very inexperienced and that that inexperience is showing in how he is handling things. You have been an observer on the national stage for quite a while now. What's uh, what are your thoughts about Mike Johnson? I think he we talk about a lot of times in politics and we often poll test people as generic Republicans or generic Democrats. You put them on the on the uh, polling just to see how it would do if you had someone who uh, has no name identification. How would they do? And generally they poll better because they have no baggage attacks attached to them. Mike Johnson got the speakership because he was a generic Republican. They had gone through so many rounds of trying to find a speaker. They couldn't get anybody to stick. Mike Johnson raised his hand. A bunch of people said, who's Mike Johnson? And that was good enough to get him in the speakership. But the problem is, is that there is that that reality then comes to that the reality will never come to fruition. There is nobody who has no baggage. There is nobody who has no actual background. So when you see what he's voted for, what he stood for, that he's voted to repeal health care, that he supported a Muslim ban, that he is one of the most anti-gay members of Congress, that he has supported a budget-busting ta- Trump tax cut that just went to the wealthy, that he was a key architect of a lot of legal chicanery that attempted to overturn the 2020 election, uh, that he voted to shut down the government by rejecting a deal that he ultimately said was okay once he became a speaker because he realized he had no other way out of it. Is he over his head? Absolutely he's in over his head. He went from the day before being elected speaker to probably, you know, riding around in a beat-up station wagon with a staffer to a full security detail, and you are now one of the 
three core members of government in a negotiating trifecta between the Senate House and the White House trying to get trying to get deals done, trying to keep the government open. And, you know, it's not a place for on the job learning. He wasn't in leadership before. So the, the ability for him to at least initially kick the can down the road with the government shutdown, people gave him a pass. But I don't think he's going to get a pass any further. And the stakes are high now. And so it's very dangerous that someone like him is in this position because he's an untested quantity and we have seen no leadership skill from him that shows that he can navigate this problem. Which is why I'm afraid that rather than try to do something and do it poorly, uh, he will simply say, you know what, we're um, we're going to take a, we're going to take our recess this Friday and we'll deal with all this when we get back. And if funding runs out for Ukraine at the end of the month, well, that will be a real shame. But, you know, the the administration could have capitulated to all of our demands on the border. They didn't. So it's really their fault. I mean, that sounds like a Mike Johnson thing to do and say. Uh, please tell me I'm being way too cynical here. <laughs> I mean, there's a chance right there is a possibility that he does. It's very dangerous. I mean, it is not as if we don't pass any Ukraine funding now that they will run out. I think different estimates have said that they have three to four months left of resources. But it's also a horrible position to continue to put Ukraine in because Putin can play an easier game on his side as an authoritarian leader who has no problem risking all of his people of just waiting out the West. If he sees dysfunction like that and people go home when it seems that there are critical deadlines to get bills done to help Ukraine, then it only makes his position stronger. And, you know, it's it's a problem that is, is not going to go away. Yes, he could kick the can down the road. He could say we're going to go home for the holidays. Uh, but the reality is he's going to come home to not only this problem, but then also a government funding problem. So the, the dynamics will not have changed. We have he has leverage as well as Democrats have leverage because of this holiday deadline. I would think if there is a world in which we could possibly get something done, both sides have an incentive to get something done. But there is no guarantee. I said to somebody recently that I thought that Mike Johnson was to some degree bulletproof because it took uh, it took so many votes and so much chaos to get him in the speakership. He is beloved or at least appreciated by the ultra far right. And if they bring him down, they are more than likely going to get a new speaker who is more moderate than him. But one of my guests recently said that they didn't necessarily think that the far, far right was thinking it through that logically. And that if Mike Johnson takes a false step or God forbid, you know, make does a bipartisan deal that he will be he'll be toast. What do you think? It's entirely possible. I don't think that we're we're still in uncharted waters with the Republican caucus because this is the most chaotic House Republican organization we've ever seen. We, we They took forever to elect Kevin McCarthy. They threw him out. They couldn't find someone new. They find this guy who's got very little experience. He is already left and right violating a lot of the precepts that they want him to hold uh, true to. But I think the reality is as much as no one wanted to really have to step up and take this job after Kevin McCarthy was out and after numerous people failed before, it is going to be even worse if Mike Johnson is booted. So there is a little bit of, you know, maybe they're playing a game of the emperor has no clothes with Mike Johnson, because if they call him out on it, they're going to find a new emperor. And, and I don't know who's going to step up and I don't know what kind, kind of agreement they would, they would be able to find. Keep in, keeping in mind, mm-hmm. they've also expelled George Santos 
that seat will have a special election. Knock on wood, Democrats will hopefully pick up that seat, so their margin will be even thinner. And the, the, the reality is they just don't have a governing philosophy right now. It's just to tread water. Um, and that is why we see so much chaos happening with impeachment inquiries into Joe Biden. It's distraction. This faction of the Republican Party has absolutely no interest in govern, governing. They don't want to make government work. They'd rather throw sand in the gears. They'd rather make President Biden's life more difficult. And by translation, making the American people's life more difficult because they're not interested in getting anything actually done. Well, talking about a slim margin, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but didn't Kevin McCarthy say not just that he wasn't going to run for reelection, but that he was resigning, that basically yes. he was going to come home for the holidays and never come back? Uh, doesn't that mean another uh, loss of a Republican vote, another special election? Though I know Kevin comes from a pretty conservative area, so the chance of flipping that seat might not be as strong, but that's going to put them down even another vote, isn't it? It might. I'm not sure on the appointment, uh, whether or not that will happen, whether it'll be a special election. It will definitely bring them one down, at least momentarily. But like you noted, uh, it's a Republican district, so it'll be filled with Republican. Uh, but the, the interesting part about Sanders' district is that's a district that voted for Joe Biden. And you have mm-hmm. Representative, former Representative Tom Swazi, uh, who has thrown his hat in the ring, who, if I had to make a bet, I would say he would be the next person uh, to represent that district. So, uh, yeah, temporarily, that might also be a problem for, for Mike Johnson. Um, and I think the question is just, what are they what what can Republicans even plan to get done in the near term other than keep the government open and to pass the supplemental. Now, like you've noted, they're, they're toying around with the supplemental to see what else they can get on border security. But those are the two tasks in front of them. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you were to put Ukraine to the pro- the problem with all of this and the problem with this is all, was also the problem with immigration when I worked in the House of Representatives back in 2012, is that there is a faction of the Republican Party that is so extreme that will not allow things to pass if it does not pass with a majority of the Republican caucus. Uh, that is a rule that Republicans have followed. They don't bring up bills if the majority of the caucus is not going to go vote for it. Well, two things. One, the immigration fight that we are having right now about securing the border, getting that funding. In 2012, we had a gang of eight senators in the Senate pass a bipartisan immigration bill with over 60 votes. I want to say it was something like 68 votes. It got sent to the House. And John Banner refused to bring it up for a vote, despite the fact that if he did bring it up for a vote, and this was a provision that included citizenship for dreamers, yeah, pathway to citizenship for dreamers, included border security, included funding for judges to make our legal system better, all the problems we're having right now. John Banner wouldn't bring it up for a vote because the majority of Republicans would not vote for it, despite the fact that if he did bring it up for a vote, there would have been enough Democrats and enough Republicans in the House to pass it. And Barack Obama would have signed that legislation, and we would not be in the mess we're in right now. And that is the same situation we are in with Ukraine funding. It may be unpopular on the far right, but if you brought it up, it would pass clean. President Biden would sign it. And we have just for over a decade now, this far right flank of Republicans, particularly, particularly in the House of Representatives. And it is it is really hurting the country. Well, maybe Mike Johnson is looking at that scenario and thinking to himself, damn, that didn't work out very well for Boehner. Um, so why should I stick my neck out? I mean, you know, I, 
I may not be very good at this job, but um, I'd kind of like to keep it for a while. I don't know. Do you know that Republicans generally, whether it's, you know, of of the last several speakers in that I've uh, been aware of in my lifetime, their colleagues have not treated them uh, well in the long run. I mean, they've either jumped or been pushed uh, pretty much out the door each and every time. Um, Tim, we've got a caller uh, who would like to join our conversation. Steve right. is calling in from the Gold Coast. Steve, you're on with me and Tim Hogan. Go ahead. Yes, and I think you've raised a, n- a number of really important topics here. And, and yes, it's this bizarre you know, dynamic that's at work in the Republican Party, whereby, yes, they have to agree that a majority of them are on board with regard to legislation, rather than, you know, this crazy thing called bipartisanship, you know, that we might actually pass something uh, that's based on cooperation between the two sides of the aisle. No, 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 we're not going to bring up anything that our party does not support, the majority of the people in that part. It's just ridiculous. And and then uh, with regard to Mr. Johnson, I mean, Speaker Johnson, this is a guy who would be a neophyte in any other uh, House, sort of, you know, in, in terms of uh, his experience. I mean, he, he came into the House in 2017. He's a neophyte at best. You know, this is when you're getting your legs underneath you. It's not. It's not a time when you should, you're qualified to be the speaker. And then, uh, lastly, uh, I think there's a, there's another strange dynamic with regard to this whole funding issue with regard to Israel and Ukraine because you've got strange factions within the Republican Party, some that are actually sympathetic toward Vladimir Putin and Russia and therefore aren't, aren't sympathetic to additional aid. And then you've got people who are both for and against aid for Israel because the Republican Party is not without its share of anti-Semites. I mean, keep in mind that the people who are out there in the Unite the Right rally and what they were yelling and screaming, these are not people who are fans of Israel. So on the one hand, you've got those who are, and then on the other hand, you've got a segment, uh, especially within the MAGA Republicans, uh, who uh, are suspicious of anything that Israel does. And it's not as if they're fans of the Palestinians, but they don't like Israel. So, again, it's these sort of strange dynamics that are at work within the Republican Party. And I don't know where they go from here uh, on that, because it makes it very difficult to pass all of this funding. Uh, Possibly the only thing you can get most people to agree upon is funding for Taiwan military funding to there. But once you introduce Ukraine and then Israel into the equation, it becomes very convoluted. Um, <clears throat> yes, and I think that's what we're seeing right now. Very convoluted, which is uh, another way to describe the the lack of movement that we see that we see from from the current Congress. I mean, Tim, you are experienced with how the, these things work. If Tim, if if Mike Johnson behind the scenes is conferring with people and trying to figure this out, is he talking to the far right? Is he does he has he gathered, you know, Matt Gates and and Lauren Boebert together? Is that his brain trust? Who does Mike Johnson rely upon for advice? Yeah, that's the thing. When you have a slim majority like the Republicans do, you really are conferring with everybody. Um, and that is an impossible job. That's why you have your reps. That's why you have your assistant leaders. And that's why people like Kevin McCarthy on the Republican side, it's why people like Nancy Pelosi on the Democratic side 
Uh, and and now Speaker Hakeem, uh, uh, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, um, build their infrastructure over time. You build relationships with the members of your caucus over time. So you have clear channels of communication when you're in tough spots, when there are tough votes, when there are things that you need to huddle on um, and get your ducks in a row. And I think part of the reason we've seen such inaction from Speaker Johnson on so many things is not because he necessarily, you know, wants the government to shut down or doesn't want to move the aid board. That could be entirely true independently. But I think it's also he is watching for himself not to step on the landmines that his caucus has made so clear that they've set for him uh, and that he is out of this honeymoon period. And, mm-hmm. you know, now he has to be very careful about exactly what he's doing. Um, it sounds like Joan, it hasn't started yet, but reporters are just being led into the Indian Treaty Room uh, in the White House for Biden and Zelensky's joint news conference. So uh, we should be hearing from them sometime soon here. Um, uh, yes, uh, let's uh, let's hope that they wouldn't it be great if they announced that um, that there is a bipartisan supported bill for Ukraine funding and by God, it's going to be voted on tomorrow. Um <laughs> On the yeah. other the other issue, I, I know we only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, as you know, the House Rules Committee was expected to vote on whether or not to kick the idea of a Biden impeachment out of committee to the full Congress, uh, despite the fact that they all admit that they have found no evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors. Uh, the thinking seems to be that regardless, they will send it to the full Congress. Um, because, again, you know, these quote unquote moderate Republicans, the Republicans who've gone on CNN and say, well, if there's any evidence, I haven't seen it. But um, here we are. Uh, what do you think? Do you th- do you think we're going to be going through a full blown Biden impeachment? It is just such a ridiculous moment of history that we're in. And they have tried. I will give them credit. They've tried so hard. They've tried so hard to find anything, to make anything stick. They've wasted so much money. They've wasted so much time. They've spun up so many conspiracy theories that have ended up absolutely nowhere. I never needed to know this much about Hunter Biden's truck payment. That is where we are. Uh, it, it, is, it is an utter failure. They are, they are, not, they are not good at this. They are good at getting a very small fraction of their base extremely riled up about this, to live in a rabbit hole where they have can they can speak to each other but nobody else in code words about emails and checks and truck payments and this and that. But over and over and over and over again, when it gets pulled to the American people, and, and Republicans love talking about polling right now because they love the position that they're in. It's not going to be where they end up, trust me. But polling hmm. shows over and over, the American people do not care about this. They do not understand it because Republicans cannot communicate it, and they do not care about it because voters are forward-looking. They care about what people are going to do for them. They care about what their elected officials are going to do for them, and because they do not believe the case that Republicans have laid out, and they shouldn't because it doesn't make any sense. So I am so worried that we are now, we have lowered the bar where we are just going to impeach anyone who's president ever. Because mm-hmm. we are or, or start an impeachment inquiry into any president ever, because that is the standard that Republicans have set. They do not like that Donald Trump was impeached, rightfully so. And so now this is their revenge to ruin the tool, to ruin the good use 
and purpose of an impeachment inquiry and to just try to bring everyone into the mud. That's all they're doing. That's all they're doing. Absolutely. It's a retribution and retaliation that their Lord and Master has asked for. Tim Hogan, thank you so much. He is Heartland Signal Senior News Editor, our Executive Editor. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today and uh, sharing some of your thoughts with us. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Uh, President Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky are now holding a joint news conference on Ukraine aid. Let's listen live. That we've gotten to this point. You know, we need to fully appreciate, fully appreciate how it's wrong, how this is being viewed around the world and being used by Russia. Russian loyalists in Moscow celebrated when when Republicans voted to block Ukraine's aid last week. The host of a Kremlin-run show literally said, and I quote, well done, Republicans. That's good for us, end of quote. Let me say that again. This host of a Kremlin-run show said, well done, Republicans. That's good for us. That's a Russian speaking. If you're being celebrated by Russian propagandists, it might be time to rethink what you're doing. History, history will judge harshly those who turn their back on freedom's cause. Today, Ukraine's freedom is on the line. But if we don't stop Putin, it will endanger the freedom of everyone almost everywhere. Putin will keep going, and would-be aggressors everywhere will be emboldened to try to take what they can by force. Mr. President, I'll not walk away from Ukraine, and neither will the American people. A clear bipartisan majority of people across the United States and in Congress support your country. They understand, as I do, that Ukraine's success and its ability to deter aggression in the future are vital to security for the world at large. And I have repeatedly made clear from our first day in office We also need Ukraine to make changes to fix the broken immigration system here. We also need Congress to make the changes to fix the broken immigration system here at home. My team is working with Senate Democrats and Republicans to try to find a bipartisan compromise, both in terms of changes in policy and provide the resources we need to secure the border. Compromise is how democracy works, and I'm ready and offered compromise already. Holding Ukraine funding hostage in the attempt to force through an extreme Republican partisan agenda on the border is not how it works. We need real solutions. I also ask Congress for funding for Israel to take on Hamas and confront multiple other threats backed by Iran in the wake of the October 7th assault. National Security Advisor Sullivan will travel to the region this week and meet with the Israeli War Cabinet, as I have met with, to emphasize our commitment to Israel, as well as the need to protect civilian life and ensure more humanitarian assistance flows and reaches into Gaza for Palestinian civilians. Secretary Austin will also travel to the region this week to step up the international efforts to protect the free flow of commerce through the Red Sea. The entire world is watching what we do. So let's show them who we are. America stands for freedom today, tomorrow, and always. 
America stands against tyranny and against oppression. And America stands with the people of Ukraine. Thank you again for being here today, Mr. President, and thank you for everything Ukraine is doing to hold the line for liberty in the world. The floor is yours, Mr. President. Thank you very much, Mr. President, dear journalists. I'm glad to be here and personally thank you and tell you how Ukraine values what we've achieved together, defending life and freedom. In Ukraine, we are fighting for our country and freedom, and also in Europe, we say for our freedom and yours. And this motto resonates not only in our country, not only in our hearts, not only in Ukraine, but also in Poland and Baltic states, Moldova and others. When freedom is strong in one country, it is strong everywhere. When it burns in one soul, it presents its merits to, to others. Ukrainians have twice, Ukrainians have twice led revolutions this century, defending freedom. For nearly two years, we have been in a full-scale war, the biggest, the biggest since World War II, fighting for freedom. We stand firm, no matter what Putin tries, he hasn't won any victories. Thanks to Ukraine's success, success in defense, other European nations are safe from the Russian aggression, unlike in the past. Ukraine can now tackle the Russian dictatorship, so our children and other nations won't have to shed their blood and sacrifice lives defending against Russian aggression. We've already made significant progress. We've shown that our courage and partnership are stronger than any Russian hostility. And we have freed 50% of the territories Russia occupied after February 24th. And we won the Black Sea and are reviving our economy thanks to maritime exports. Ukraine's 5% economic growth this year proves our effective partnership. And we have shown no, no Russian missiles can overdoor the powerful American Patriot systems. Thank you very much. And even during war, we are reforming our country and strengthening our, our institutions. Today, President Biden and I discussed how to increase our strengths for next year, first air defense and destroying Russian logistics on Ukraine's land. Mr. President, thank you very much for your supporting, supporting us. And in these areas, like our victory in the Black Sea, we aim to win the air battle, crashing Russian air dominance. This will, this will intensify our ground advances in 2024 with our control of the skies. Who controls the skies controls the war's duration. And today I would like to thank, of course, for yet another significant defense package with our defenders' value very much. Second, yesterday I met with American, American defense company leaders. They advised us on how to make our defense industries work faster and more 
effectively. Thank you, President Biden, for this important initiative. We started with you. Together, Ukraine and America can strengthen democracy's arsenal. And this is vital for other free nations and the U.S. as it involves your companies, technologies, and technology advancement and job creation. And it is important to know that two-thirds of American support for Ukraine remains and works in the United States. Third, I informed Mr. President that Ukraine has fulfilled all the recommendations of the European Commission regarding the preparation for a decision to start negotiations on Ukraine's accession to the uh, EU. And we constantly communicate with European leaders about our joint steps, sanctions, and political efforts to pressure Russia. American leadership is crucial, is keeping this unity together, a unity that serves the entire free world. And I thank America for new sanctions. And today we discussed Putin's further isolation and making him pay for his aggression. It's very important that by the end of this year, we can send very strong signal of our unity to the aggressor and the unity of Ukraine, America, Europe, the entire free world. Everything we talked about today will help us in the year 2024. Today's discussions in the White House and in Congress across both parties and both chambers with a speaker were very productive, and I thank you for the bipartisan support. As we approach Christmas, on behalf of all our Ukrainian families, separated by war and all sons and daughters on the front, Ukraine's greatest wish is to near this war's victorious end. No one, no one but Putin wants, wants a prolonged war. We dream of a Christmas in a peacetime, of course. And we are working to turn our battlefield success into peace. And we are heading there together with you. And thanks, of course, to your support. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Thank you, America. Slava Ukraine. Thank you. Look, uh, we're going to alternate asking questions. We're going to ask a total. That was uh, the opening remarks by President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who would like very much for this war to be over by Christmas. Well, I'm sure understanding that that is highly unlikely. Um, requesting not only aid, but... Um, aid of a higher caliber than Ukraine has received to this point so that Russia can be not just held at bay, but defeated decisively. Of course, Mike Johnson uh, is um, saying there's going to be no aid to Ukraine unless there's um, White House capitulation to a long list of immigration requirements that they have. So who knows if Congress is going to go home for vacation this Friday and aid for Ukraine is going to run out. I hope um, the Ukrainian president showing up in person made a difference. But the way things stand right now with our party politics, who knows if that's the case. We are going to take a break and we are going to be back with more after this.
You know that you can listen to Chicago's Progressive Talk on WCPT AM 820. Stream us live at WCPT820.com and on the TuneIn Radio app. Or you can ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play WCPT from TuneIn. But now you have another option. We're simulcasting our programming overnight. 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. on WSBC AM 1240 for a clearer reception in and around the city. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820. And now overnights on WSBC 1240 a.m. where facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Quite a while ago, I was asking one of my friends, um, you know, what they thought about what would be a great place to retire. And uh, my friend looked at me and said, the Midwest. And I was like, excuse me? And she said, well, you know, temperatures are getting warmer, um, so the rest of the country might be too hot. But also, we will never have to worry about water being right on the Great Lakes. We will have water at least as, at least through my lifetime, which might not be all that uh, all that much longer. But water is a big, big concern. So many places around the planet. We're going to talk right now with um, David Sedlak, who is the Plato, I can't even say that, David. I'm just going to say the professor of civil and environmental engineering at University of California, Berkeley. And that way I don't embarrass either you or me, David. But uh, David has a new book. It's called Water for All and uh, joins us now to talk about it. Thank you for being here, David. Thank you for having me, Joan. I was um I was really interested in your in your idea of solutions going forward. You've already written of the sort of like the comprehensive book on water, past, present, future of uh, the world's most vital resource. But one of the one of the really fascinating parts to me of this book were um exploring what might be considered unusual sources for making up uh, for a lack of water or increasing our supplies of water. Um, and I want to talk to you in depth about especially our ideas of using treated sewage, which I thought were, was, was, uh, was a little bit startling to me. But why did, you, why did you want to write this follow-up book? You pretty much covered the topic of everything you need to know about water in your first book. Well, the first book was primarily about rich people who live in cities and how they might get water in the future. And this book is taking on some new territory. It's thinking beyond that. It's thinking about people who live in low and middle income countries. It's thinking about people who don't have connections to improve water supplies now. It's thinking about where we're going to get enough water to grow food in a time of a changing climate. And it's thinking about how we might change the way we manage water to protect the environment from the effects of climate change. So it's a much broader look that goes well beyond drinking water and thinks about the solutions instead of just the problems. I know in your in one of your TED Talks, I, I think you have done more than one, but you talked about um, the abundant drinking water may soon not be so abundant in many places. 
that, you know, uh, we, reservoirs could dry, groundwater aquifers could be depleted. Is this because of global warming? There are two things that are leading to water scarcity around the world. The first one is a result of climate change, and it's kind of an insidious problem that the climate researchers are starting to call aridification. That is, it's not just a question of less rainfall. It's the fact that as the temperature gets warmer, the atmosphere holds more water and water evaporates more quickly from the land. So we're finding situations where just as much rain and snow is falling, but less water is making it to reservoirs and to uh, replenish groundwater. And so we're seeing that as one of the drivers of water scarcity. And the other is uh, continued overuse of water. You know, the United States, uh, in the United States, the rate of population growth has slowed down. But in much of the rest of the world, populations are still surging and people are becoming wealthier. And as they become wealthier, they adopt lifestyles that require more water. In particular, uh, as people get wealthier, they have uh, the, the money to buy more meat and, uh, and, and foods that require more water to grow. And so overall, we're seeing uh, water shortages irrespective of climate change just due to uh, global population growth and development. You mentioned that when people get wealthy, they use more water. We saw a small example of that when we had the recent severe drought out west, and we were looking at all these reservoirs and how far down they had gotten. I believe uh, in the Las Vegas area, they even found a couple of bodies that had been dumped in the reservoir, which was now so low that they the bodies were able to be found. But there was... Um, there was a big crisis in California, and I remember reading that the water department was going around to homes of celebrities and installing water restriction devices because there were certain celebrities, uh, Kim Kardashian and Sylvester Stallone come to mind, who refused to not water their expansive uh, grass estates. Um, that seems to me one very silly example of uh, wealthy people not being willing to do their fair share. But I didn't think in terms of when people get wealthier, eating more meat and meat taking more water to produce than, say, if you're li eating a vegetarian diet. Oh, sure. The footprint, you know, when we think about our water use, it takes between 10 and 50 times more water to feed us than it is does to provide us with uh, the water we use in our homes every day. So our water footprint, if you want to think about it that way, is largely uh, coming from our food supply and the way we generate our energy and the products in our homes. So even though seeing people using water on their lawns or thinking about saving money by taking shorter showers or washing your clothes uh, less frequently comes to mind, the real ways that we, we save water is to look at the, the, the big uses and try to find uh, ways of, of generating efficiency there. Um, speaking of the drought in California, we saw things get very, very bad and then the rains finally came, and most of those reservoirs were filled up again. Some of them filled up to the 
levels that they had started at. Is that what we're going to see going forward, kind of this seesaw effect? That, that's right. That's what is predicted to be more common, and we're seeing that kind of the end of droughts are often followed by uh, historic rains, and, and we're seeing also uh, not only in the western U.S., but throughout the rest of the country that we get these shorter, more severe storms. And those pose their own potential risks due to flooding. But when that rain arrives over a very short period, it's harder for us to capture that water in our reservoirs because it it runs off so quickly uh, and makes its way back to the sea. One of the things that I've read about since I was a little girl was the idea that if we could just get the science right, I mean, we have oceans uh, here, there, everywhere. If we could just figure out an easy and economic way to make that water drinkable, then all the world's water problems would be solved. Is, is that a naive view of the world, and is that technology ever going to be easy, simple, and cheap? Uh, no, it's not naive at all. In fact, uh, this was kind of one of the things that uh, President Kennedy wanted to do when he got into office was to find a way to make water uh, desalination cheap and easy because he thought it would be a great contribution to humankind. And the effort that the U.S. government started in the 1960s through something called the Office of Saline Water actually paid great dividends, not only in the U.S., but around the world. And so Seawater desalination is a technology that over the years has gotten cheaper and much less energy intensive. So in the early days, in the 1970s and 1980s, the only people that used seawater desalination were practically like folks who lived on small islands where there was no water or Mm -hmm. some of the oil-rich countries in the Middle East. But over time, the invention that took place during that period uh, following the Kennedy administration's funding that called the reverse osmosis membrane matured, yeah. and it replaced the, the, the distillation process used for seawater desalination. And we're at the point today where in many cities around the world, places like uh, Los Angeles and Perth in Australia and, uh, and Tel Aviv and, and in, in Barcelona, the next cheapest water supply is seawater desalination. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Professor uh, Sedlak, because among the other unconventional water sources that he suggests are things like replenishing groundwater with treated sewage, refilling reservoirs with treated sewage, irrigating crops with treated sewage. I don't know how I feel about that, but perhaps he can convince me it's a good idea. We will talk about it when we come right back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 a.m., WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by the author of a book called Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. Professor David Sedlak is the Plato Malozimov Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at uh, UC Berkeley. And uh, he has quite a large section on 
what do you call it, unconventional ideas about adding to our water resources, most all of which that have to do with treated sewage, um, convince me that that's going to be a safe avenue. Well, if you give me enough time, I'll convince you that uh, <laughs> that you prefer to do this than drinking out of uh, some of the water sources that, that we're already familiar with that might be contaminated with uh, pesticide runoff or agricultural fertilizers. So um, really, this issue of drinking treated wastewater is not new at all. Uh, when you live downstream of another city, that city discharges its treated wastewater into a river and that river becomes your city's water supply. So around the country, there are plenty of cities where anywhere from uh, one to 50 or 60 percent of the water coming into the drinking water treatment plant had been just uh, a few days or weeks earlier uh, in the sewage treatment plant of the upstream city. So that's that's nothing new. And we've been doing this for uh, well over a hundred years in the United States because we have the means of uh, removing the waterborne pathogens that would make us sick and the chemicals in sewage that might make the water taste bad. The real innovation it started in the 1970s when water-stressed cities realized that they could use this to augment their water supply. And in the book, I talk about um, Orange County, south of Los Angeles and north of San Diego, where today essentially all of the treated sewage from the city is put through an advanced treatment technology. After the conventional sewage treatment, it goes through the same sorts of reverse osmosis membranes we use to desalinate seawater. It goes through a few more treatment processes, and it gets put into the ground where it becomes a drinking water supply. They don't discharge uh, treated sewage to the ocean in Orange County anymore. Uh, They only discharge some of the residual material from the reverse osmosis process. The treated sewage goes back into the water supply. And cities around the uh, water-stressed west, uh, that might be San Diego, El Paso in Texas, uh, Phoenix, they're all looking towards this technology and expanding it. If that doesn't convince you that people in Southern California have been doing this for um, 40 years or so, you can look uh, to Northern Virginia, where in the area uh, just outside of the nation's capital, um, the suburbanization of the watershed where a large reservoir was uh, resulted in treated wastewater being one of the main sources of water going into a place called the Upper Occoquan Reservoir, which serves uh, parts of, of Northern Virginia. Uh, and has been doing so since the 1970s. And so uh, they have a similar kind of advanced water treatment plant that's doing this. And the same could be said of uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and, uh, and, and Houston, Texas. There are major cities in America that already obtain a significant fraction of their drinking water from treated wastewater. And no one uh, uh, notices it or complains about it or seems to be getting sick from it. Um, That is, I think, stunning. And when you say treated wastewater, you are talking about um, any kind of bacterium filtered out, any kind of chemicals filtered out. I mean, treated wastewater, how treated is it? I mean, are we talking that by the end of the process, we're looking at distilled water? It 
is essentially distilled water. By the time it goes through the biological and chemical treatment processes, it is so clean that um, in some places, for example, in Singapore, where they use this process, the pharmaceutical manufacturing companies and the chemical industry fight for that water and they'd rather have that water than the local tap water because it's deionized already and it's easier for them to to use in their their advanced processes so this stuff is so clean after it goes through these treatment processes we sometimes have to blend it back with the local water supply to make sure that it doesn't taste funny because if you think about drinking distilled water distilled water tastes terrible Yeah. So you normally have to remineralize it. And that's also the same way, like if you buy, oh, I don't know, Dasani water or Aquafina water, that's the same process. It's reverse osmosis of the local tap water and you add back in some salts to make it taste good. And essentially, there's no difference between that and the treated wastewater uh, that's uh, put into the water supply by these advanced treatment plants. Wow. Um, And... Are we now talking about what is the future? I think it's the future in a lot of water-stressed, wealthy cities because it comports better with people's desire to live in a, a circular manner and recycle. It's familiar to us. We recycle our trash. We recycle our uh, lots of materials in our lives. And if it's possible to recycle water, that means we're not taking water out of the environment. That means we're not building nor- more dams and reservoirs. And in many people's minds, it also is advantageous. Of course, we're avoiding the construction of seawater desalination plants. And there are concerns that when you put in a seawater desalination plant, you might suck in larval fish through the intake pipes, or you might damage the environment by discharging salt after you are done with the process. So it really has caught on, especially in the Western United States. Are you saying that those plants take the salt that they pull out of the ocean water and throw it back in the ocean? Sure. So a modern seawater desalination plant takes in uh, many million gallons per day of seawater, and they produce two streams. One stream is fresh, clean water, and the other is seawater, except it's twice as salty as it started out. Oh, so it's not just pure salt. Because I was going to say, I I pay a lot of money for sea salt. You know, they're wasting (laughs) it. Well, there are some parts of the world, like, for example, in Saudi Arabia, they take the uh, the salty water produced from their desalination process and they send it to the chemical industry and they do use it for industrial processes uh, in their chemical manufacturing sector. Hmm. Uh, incredible. Um, we have a couple of minutes left. And rather than me, you know, picking and choosing the parts of your book that I thought were interesting, what would you like to share with my audience from from your research, from your writing here in uh, your new book, Water for All? I think what I'd like to share is that the water crises that we see in the news are happening more frequently. It's not just your imagination. And at times it seems really dire and a little bit depressing, but there are so many creative ways that people are discovering to 
supply water, whether those are new technologies like water recycling and desalination, whether they're policy innovations, uh, whether it's a question of realizing that there's a human right to water and a right Mm -hmm. of the environment to water. All of these things come together and give us the means to solve the crises that we're facing and we'll face more in the future and sure that there's enough water for everyone or water for all. Wow. Uh, David Sedlak, professor at UC Berkeley. The book is called Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. And um, it's eye-opening and interesting and informative. And you know what, David? Who could ask for more? Thank you, Kim. We are going to take a break. We are going to be back with uh, Greg Hines from Crane's Chicago Business after this. Alexa, play WCPT. WCPT from TuneIn. Now back to Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As we are in the waning days of 2023, it is a good time to look back at the year that was, look forward to the year that will be, and try to make some sense out of all of it. Uh, I asked uh, Greg Hines, a columnist at Crane's Chicago Business, if he would join us today and share his pearls of wisdom with us. Greg, how are you today? I'm okay, but if you expect me to explain all the craziness in the world, you got the wrong guest. <laughs> um, well, let's, uh, let's look back here. Um, I think that... Um, J.B. Pritzker's performance over the last year, for the most part, has been a big, bright, bright spot here in the state of Illinois. Agree or disagree? I would agree. Uh, the state is is better off uh, than it was when he took office. Now, some people would say, some of our Republican friends would say, well, that's a, a low, low bar given that uh, Bruce around essentially let the world collapse around him because he didn't get what he wanted. And there's some truth to that. But the, but the, the state is in better financial shape. Our credit rating is up. Uh, we have money in the bank and in our rainy day fund in a way we didn't have. We have put a lot more money into social services and education. Uh, we started to attract some some big businesses here, uh, particularly in the electric vehicle business and the battery business, which is uh, growing pretty quickly. Um, uh, he hasn't been perfect. Uh, uh, day-to-day governance is kind of a weak spot. There's been uh, a series of little things that uh, suggest that maybe a little more attention need to be paid to running the show day-to-day, but by and large, not bad. I agree with you. Greg, you know, Maybe you can answer this for me. I've always, I've, you know, I've talked to Susanna Mendoza a million times. We have this rainy day fund that used to be um, pretty bleak, and now it is certainly more robust. What, what is that for? I mean, if we were hit with a, with a big hurricane that wiped out half the state, would that be what the rainy day fund is for? Uh, would it be for some sort of governmental use? I've never really gotten a good answer about that. It's more for uh, look at it. I'd look at it as more as a, a counter, uh, an economic countercyclical uh, uh, savings account, uh, where when times are bad and people aren't working and tax receipts go down, instead of laying off more people and cutting services when people most need them, you're able to take some money out of the bank. I see. I see. That makes perfect sense. Um, sorry, I couldn't get there on my own, but thank you for the help. Uh, I appreciate it. 
Let's see. What else can we well, look at? Well, it, I, before, before you get off it, it is controversial because some people, I mean, there's always people who say, why are you saving money? Spend it. We have, mm-hmm. we have programs. You have to you have to hit the right balance. Um, uh, you know the economy is not going to be peppy. There's going to be recessions, and you want to make those recessions go go down as as, as lightly as they can. You also want to keep the state's credit rating up, which is what reserves are for. Uh, because when you don't have reserves, uh, they tend to charge you more money when you borrow money. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe our credit rating has yet attained the same level that it was at before Bruce Rauner. Is that correct, Greg? Uh, I think that is, I'd have to go back and look, and it varies a little bit by agency, but uh, uh, generally we're, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're right on the premises of, of being ranked at junk, uh, which is non-investment grade. Um, we're now two or three levels ahead of that. Um, we're still, uh, to put it a different way, we're still ranked the lowest of the 50 states, along with, I think, West Virginia, uh, but uh, and there are signs that uh, it could go up a little bit more, and it's certainly better than it was. Okay. Well, you know, that was um, Governor Pritzker's handling of most of the state business, um, kind of a bright spot. Um, just like on Capitol Hill, the migrant situation certainly has been one of the dark marks uh, here in the state of Illinois, and also, too, because it's exposed uh, the, how great the need still is for people who are unhoused and, uh, you know, people who uh, work at low-paying jobs and need more affordable housing. Do you see in 2024 improvement in this area? I guess we could say it probably can't get worse, right? Uh, Donald, Donald Trump could be elected president. He could take care of the immigrant problem. Oh, well, that there's that. Yes, there's that little, that's that little, uh, uh, it could, it could be worse. Um, you know, the core problem is that, is that, uh, is that, is that neither of the major political parties is willing to do the kinds of things that are necessary to bring about a, a compromise here. And the, and the solution is probably somewhere in the middle, like it always is. We can argue about exactly where, but, uh, but it, it, from my perspective, uh, while on the one hand, you can't take in every immigrant who shows up. Uh, this country is wealthy and it has a generous heart, uh, and it needs labor, but it can't accept everybody from the world all the time. It just can't. Uh, at the same time, you have DACA kids who've been here, a million of them, who've been here for years. They're either they're in college or they're, they're uh, uh, holding down jobs. They have families, and, you know, Republicans just throw them out and send them back to, to someplace they've never been since they were a little baby. That doesn't make any sense either. Um, uh, we need a certain number of immigrants because, as I said, uh, we have a labor shortage in this country. When we all get old and, and, and retire, which I'm in the process of doing, this is going to pay for us. It's got to be younger people. If there's no younger people, guess what? There's no money for for grandpa. Uh, uh, so there's a solution there, but neither party wants to wants to run the political risk of offending its base and, and uh, agreeing on a deal. Yes, uh, looking back at 2023, one of the things that might have been good for Greg Hines, not so good for Cranes and the rest of us, is that Greg decided to go into a kind of semi-retirement. Do you see that continuing in 2024? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm... I. Uh... I'm going to pick my shots and uh, and uh, get involved when uh, uh, some Cranes wants me to uh, on certain issues that I've followed, uh, but uh, but uh, not the day to day stuff, which which you can only do for so for so long. I mean, you did that for a while, uh, and eventually it drowns you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, of all the issues that you follow, pick one where you can talk about what happened in 2023. Well, we got it. We, we have to talk about our mayor. Uh, I mean, that's the story this year. I, I, I have a hunch it's going to be the story next year. And he's had he's had a bumpy year. Um, uh he admittedly inherited this uh, immigrant uh, uh, refugee problem that has sucked much of the oxygen out of his administration. That's unfair to him. On the other hand, Lori Lightfoot didn't exactly plan for COVID, and she dealt with it. Um, uh, and but in the meantime, in dealing in trying to deal with that, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Other problems have started to erupt. Uh, and to give you one that's close to my heart, since I work for a business publication, the leadership of World Business Chicago, which is the, the public-private group that brings new businesses and jobs and wealth to Chicago, they all walked out last week. And while two of the three uh, were, smiled and wouldn't say anything, one of them, uh, a guy named Mark Teddy, who was, uh, who was a tech recruiter, was pretty honest. He says, hey – the Johnson administration could care less about uh, about attracting a, a business. Uh, there are their priorities somewhere else. Uh, other people tell me the same thing that uh, that the mayor's priority is on equity and workers' rights and whatever. And while those are good things, uh, if you don't have an employer there, you can't make that employer pay the worker more. Uh, much of the business community now has its back up because there's been a series of uh, of tax increases and fee increases, uh, things that individually look good, like a mandatory paid leave and a, a higher tip wage, wage and whatever. But at a certain point, uh, business will say it's too much and I'm just not going to set up business here. Um, maybe they're screaming too much. Uh, we're all going to have a big fight about this next year when we decide whether to raise the real estate transfer tax mm-hmm. uh, to, pay for, to pay for homeless services. Um, uh, that was originally billed as a, as a, as a mansion tax, uh, uh, which certainly sound good, but the, the fact of the matter is it applies to sales of over a million dollars of any kind of property, not just a house. Somebody sells a house for more than a million dollars, they can probably afford to chip in a little bit more to pay for the homeless. But uh, what about a free flat where, uh, where the rents are low uh, because uh, the, the, guy's, uh, the guy's not paying too much? Or what about, uh, what about a small store or a small business uh, where they happen to own their facility? Um, uh, We'll see how this plays out, but we're going to have a pretty good debate here, I think, about whether that is whether that is too much in the name of a good cause. Mm-hmm. When Lori Lightfoot took office and I was disappointed with things that didn't seem to be getting done, even some of which were her campaign promises, Greg, people kept telling me over and over again, she's a brand new mayor Give her some time. She's got a steep learning curve. Even after she'd been in office for a year, um, people were still saying, you know, it's a big job. Give her time. Um, I think it's interesting that while um, Brandon Johnson is also, I mean, he was a Cook County commissioner, but he, he certainly didn't hold office at this level before. But I don't hear a lot of people giving that same answer. We know a lot of people are like, well, you know, what's he doing for the business community? And, you know, his idea of putting insulated tents on toxic land, that wasn't a very good idea. And I see a lot of suggestions, a lot of criticism, but I don't see a lot of people saying, hey, you know what? He's new to the job. Give him some time. Where do you fall on that? Um, 
I agree that any newbie uh, to office, um, this mayor was certainly a newbie in terms of uh, his past governmental experience to this level of responsibility. So I can't speak for anybody else in the mayor, in, in, the, in the media. I, I've been very quiet and uh, and careful in what I've said. I, I gave him some breaks uh, at the beginning. Um, I gave him some praise. I thought his, his, he hired the right guy for police chief and, and Mr. Smelling. Um, uh, he got his budget through without a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, to do. Um, but the, uh, but, the, at a certain point, and it's been now more than six months, you have to start judging the person as to how well they're doing the job. I mean, okay, you've had, you've had a while, you've had time. Um, and I'll just mention two things that, uh, that I think we'd be delinquent not to talk about. One you reference, which is the situation with the migrants. I mean, for crying out loud, um, uh, they decide to set up a, uh, a tent encampment uh, on, on, on a, a, a site that apparently is toxically polluted. Uh, and when the state comes in and says, yeah, well, you have your experts, our experts say you can't use this, it's dangerous to people, instead of saying, okay, well, look for something else, and the, the mayor gets his back up and, 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 and says, well, I'm, I'm still right, whatever. I mean, that, that, that does not look very good. Uh, the other is this move to to restrict public ability to show up at the city council meetings. Yeah, uh, and said, what's that all about? And, 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 and said the honest, well, apparently they don't like they don't like protesters. I don't blame them. Nobody likes protesters. Uh, and how much of this is is coming from the mayor, and how much of this is coming from the alderman uh, depends on who you talk to. Uh, but he's certainly gone along. With, he certainly hasn't stood up and saying, no, we're not going to change the rules. Uh, I mean, come on, you, you talk about transparency and being available to the public when you literally close yourself off in a bubble and say, well, you can't sit there. You have to sit upstairs behind a, behind a closed windows where we can't hear you. Uh, that's not transparency. And nobody made him do that. That I, I have to say, that really surprised me, too, because everybody who campaigns for mayor is always talking about increasing transparency. I remember Lori Lightfoot, when she was campaigning, said that, you know, she was going to make sure that there were like live cameras for the committee meetings so people could tune in and hear the negotiations. Of course, none of that ever, ever happened. But I don't I don't understand a move like that. I'm a I've never run for office. I've never held office. But I can look at that situation and go, you know, this is not a good look. It's not a good look well, for me to say, oh, well, you know, you can still come. But, you know, you're going to we're going to make sure we don't hear you. And we probably aren't really going to even see you. I, what's where's the upside? What's going on? Well, there isn't. Uh, it, it's it's. Probably a sign of inexperience and not being used to uh, to uh, sitting in, in the big chair. Uh, Richard uh, Richard M. Daly uh, used to say that uh, over the years he developed a uh, uh, a hide thicker than a rhinoceros. His point was that you know criticism is part of the job. You just have to get used to it and you shrug it off and you do the job. Um, uh, you know, before we have to get off Johnson, I, I will I will say it's still early here. Like anybody who's in the first six or seven months of their turn. He has time to improve. He's got plenty of opportunities. I just hope he does. Uh, and he's, he's going through a difficult patch right now. Um, uh, one of the rumors at City Hall, I just, before I, I took, got on the show, I was talking to an alderman who says uh, he thinks that uh, the marriage of Weiser can try to restore Alderman Carlos Rosa to the chairmanship of the zoning committee at the city council meeting tomorrow. Remember, he had to step down because mm-hmm. he uh, physically got in the way and blocked uh, 
maybe perhaps put his hands on another alderman who wouldn't vote the way a woman, an only woman, uh, who wouldn't uh, vote the way, uh, promise to vote the way he wanted. Uh, so that would not be a good sign either. But uh, there's time here. It's early. Well, there is going to be plenty of time, too, to speak with Greg Hines in the future and get his opinions and expertise. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Anytime, Joan. Oh, be careful. Don't say that to me. You have no idea how often I can call. Um, That's all right. My phone phone works, so so is the off button if it becomes too much. (laughs) Oh, my God. Her again? Don't answer it. Just let it go to voicemail. Greg Hines, uh, Craig Crane's Chicago Business. That is going to do it for the two of us today. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. And I hear she has an interview with Pete Buttigieg. That should be wonderful. We can all look forward to that. I will be here tomorrow at 2 o'clock. And I will see you then. Have a great evening. Good night.